Chapter 14 Well done, said Aslan in a voice that made the earth shake. Then Diggory knew that all the Narnians had heard those words and that the story of them would be handed down from father to son in that new world for hundreds of years, perhaps forever. But he was in no danger of feeling conceited, for he didn't think about it at all now that he was face to face with Aslan. This time he found he could look straight into the lion's eyes. He had forgotten all his troubles and felt absolutely content. Well done, son of Adam, said the lion again. For this fruit you have hungered and thirsted and wept. No hand but yours shall sow the seed of the tree that is to be the protection of Narnia. Throw the apple towards the river bank where the ground is soft. Diggory did as he was told. Everyone had grown so quiet that you could hear the soft thump where it fell into the mud. It is well thrown, said Aslan. Let us now proceed to the coronation of King Frank of Narnia and Helen, his queen. The children now noticed these two for the first time. They were dressed in strange and beautiful clothes, and from their shoulders rich robes flowed out behind them to where four dwarves held up the king's train and four river nymphs held up the queens. Their heads were bare, but Helen had let her hair down, and it made a great improvement to her appearance. But it was neither hair nor clothes that made them look so different from their old selves. Their faces had a new expression, especially the king's. All the sharpness and cunning and quarrelsomeness which he had picked up as a London cabbie seemed to have been washed away, and the courage and kindness which he always had was easier to see. Perhaps it was the air of the young world that had done it, or talking with Aslan, or perhaps both. Upon my word, whispered Fletch to Polly, my old master's been changed nearly as much as I have. Why, he's a real master now. Yes, but don't buzz in my ear like that, said Polly. It tickles so. Now, said Aslan, some of you undo that tangle you have made with those trees, and let us see what we shall find there. Diggory now saw that there were four trees that grew close together, and their branches had all been laced together or tied together with switches so that it would make a sort of cage. The two elephants with their trunks and a few doors with their little axes soon got it all undone. There were three things inside. One was a young tree that seemed to be made of gold. The second was a young tree that seemed to be made of silver. And the third was a miserable object in muddy clothes, sitting haunched up between them. Gosh, whispered Diggory, Uncle Andrew. To explain all this, we must go back a bit. The beasts, you remember, had tried planting and watering him. When the watering brought him to his senses, he found himself soaking wet, buried up to his thighs in earth, which was quickly turning into mud, and surrounded by more wild animals than he had ever dreamed of in his life. It is perhaps not surprising that he began to scream and howl. This was in a good way a good thing, for it at least persuaded everyone, even the warthog, that he was alive. So they dug him up again. His trousers were in a really shocking state by now. As soon as his legs were free, he tried to bolt. But one swift curl of the elephant's trunk around his waist soon put that to an end. Everyone now thought he must be kept safely, 
somewhere until Aslan had time to come and see him and say what should be done about him. So they sort of made a cage or coop all around him. They then offered him everything they could think of to eat. The donkey collected great piles of thistles and threw them at it, but Uncle Andrew seemed to not care about them. The squirrels bombarded him with volleys of nuts, but he only covered his head with his hands and tried to keep out of the way. Several birds flew to and fro diligently, dropping worms on him. The bear was especially kind. During the afternoon, he found a wild bee's nest, and instead of eating it himself, which he would very much like to have done, this worthy creature brought it to Uncle Andrew. But this was, in fact, the worst failure of all. The bear lobbed the whole sticky mess over the top of the enclosure, and unfortunately it hit Uncle Andrew's slap in the face. Not all the bees were dead, you see. The bear would not have at all minded being hit in the face by Honeycomb himself, could and so he could not understand why Uncle Andrew staggered back, slipped, and sat down. It was sheer bad luck that he sat down in the pile of thistles. And anyways, as the warthog said, quite a lot of honey has gone into the creature's mouth, and that's bound to have done some good. They were really getting quite fond of their strange little pet and hoped that Aslan would allow them to keep it. The cleverer ones were quite sure by now that at least some of the noises which came out of his mouth had a meaning. They christened him Brandy because he made that noise so often. In the end, however, they had to leave him there for the night. Aslan was busy all that day instructing the new king and queen and doing other important things and could not attend to the poor, to poor old Brandy. With all the nuts, pears, apples, and bananas that had been thrown into him, he did fairly well for supper. But it wouldn't be true to say that he passed an agreeable night. Bring out that creature, creature, said Aslan. One of the elephants lifted Uncle Andrew in its trunk and laid him at the lion's feet. For Uncle Andrew was too frightened to move. Please, Aslan, said Polly, could you say something to, to unfrighten him? And then, could you say something to prevent him from ever coming back here again? Do you think he wants to? Aslan asked. Well, Aslan, said Polly, he might send someone else. He's so excited about the bar off the lamppost growing into a lamppost tree, and he thinks, he thinks great folly, child, said Aslan. This world is bursting with life for these first few days because the song with which I called it to life still hangs in the air and rumbles in the ground. But it will not be for so for long. But I cannot tell that the, that to this old sinner, and I cannot comfort him either. He has made himself unable to hear my voice. If I spoke to him, he would only hear growlings and roarings. Oh, Adam's sons, how clearly you defend yourself against all that might do you good. But I will give him the only gift he is still able to receive. He bowed his great head rather sadly and breathed into the magician's terrified face. Sleep, he said. Sleep and be separated for some few hours from all the torments you have devised for yourself. Uncle Andrew immediately rolled over and closed his eyes and began breathing peacefully. Carry him aside and lay him down, said Aslan. Now, 
dwarfs, show your smithcraft. Let me see you make two crowns for your new king and queen. More dwarves than you could have ever dreamed of rushed forward to the golden tree. They had all its leaves stripped off and some of its branches torn off too, before you could say the words Jack Robinson. Now the children could see that they did it not merely look gold, not and now the children could see that it did not merely look golden, but was of real soft gold. It had, of course, sprung up from the self-half-sovereigns which had fallen out of Uncle Andrew's pockets when he was turned upside down, just as the silver had grown up from the half-crowns. From nowhere, as it seems, pile of, of dry brushwood for fuel, a little anvil, hammers, tongs, and bellows were produced. The next moment, oh, how those doors loved their work, the fire was blazing, the bellows were roaring, and the gold was melting, the hammers and clinking. Two moles, whom Aslan had set to dig, which was what they liked best, early in the day, poured out a pile of precious stones at the dwarf's feet. Under the clever fingers of the little smiths, two crowns took shape. Not the ugly, heavy things like in modern, the modern European crowns, but light, delicate, beautifully shaped circles that you could really wear and look nicer by wearing them. The kings were set with rubies and the queens with emeralds. When the crowns had been cooled in the river, Aslan made Frank and Helen kneel before him, and he placed the crowns on their heads. Then he said, Rise up, king and queen of Narnia, father and mother of many kings that shall be in Narnia and the Isles and Archenland. Be just and merciful and brave. The blessing is upon you. Then everyone cheered or bayed or neighed or trumpeted or clapped its wings, and the royal pair stood, looking solemn and a little shy, but all the nobler for their shyness. And while Diggory was still cheering, he heard the deep voice of Aslan say to him, Look. Everyone in that crowd turned its head, then everyone drew a long breath of wonder and delight. A little way off, towering over their heads, they saw a tree that had certainly not been there before, and must have grown up silently yet swiftly as a flag rises when you pull it off on a flagstaff while they were all busy about with the coronation. Its spreading branches seemed to cast a light rather than a shade, and silver apples peeped out like stars from under every leaf. But it was the smell which came from it, even more than the sight, that made everyone draw in their breath. For a moment, one could hardly think about anything else. Son of Adam, said Aslan, you have sown well, and you, Narnians, let it be your first care to guard to this tree, for it is your shield. The witch of whom I told you has fled far away into the north of the world. She will live on there, growing stronger in dark magic. While that tree there flourishes, she will never come down into Narnia. She dare not come within a hundred miles of the tree, for its smell, which is joy and life and health to you, is death, horror, and despair to her. Everyone was staring solemnly at the tree when Aslan suddenly swung round his head, scattering golden gleams of light with his mane as he did so, and fixed his large eyes on the children. "'Why is it, children?' he said, for he had caught them in the very act of whispering and nudging one another. "'Oh, Aslan, sir,' said Diggory, turning red, 
I forgot to tell you. The witch has already eaten one of these apples, one of the same kind of the, that tree grew from. He couldn't really, he hadn't really said all that he was thinking, but Polly at once said it for him. Diggory was always much more afraid than she of looking a fool. So we thought, Aslan, she said, that there must be some mistake, and she can't really mind the smell of those apples. Why do you think that, daughter Beeve? said the lion. Well, she ate one. Child, he replied, that is why all the rest are now a horror to her. That is what happens to those who pluck and eat fruits at the wrong time and in the wrong way. The fruit is good, but they loathe it ever after. Oh, I see, said Polly. And I suppose because she took it in the wrong way, it won't work for her. I mean, it won't make her always young and all that. Alas, said Aslan, shaking his head. It will. Things always work according to their nature. She has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a godless goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery, and already she begins to know it. All get what they want, but they do not always like it. I I nearly ate one myself, Aslan, Diggory admitted. Would I? You would, child, said Aslan, for the fruit always works. It must work, but it does not work happily for any who pluck it at their own will. If any Narnian, unbidden, had stolen an apple and planted it here to protect Narnia, it would have protected Narnia, but it would have done so by making Narnia into another strong and cruel empire like Charn, not the kindly land I wanted it to be. And the witch tempted you to do another thing, my son, did she not? Yes, Aslan. She wanted me to take an apple home to my mother. Understand, then, that it would have been it would have healed her, but not to your joy or hers. The day would have come when both you and she would have looked back and said it would have been better to die in that illness. Diggory could not say anything, for tears choked him now, and he gave up all hopes of saving his mother's life. But at the same time he knew that the lion knew what would have happened, that there might be things more terrible even than losing someone you love by death. But now Aslan was speaking again, almost in a whisper. That is what would have happened, child, with the stolen apple. It is not what will happen now. What I give you now will bring joy. It will not in your world give endless life, but it will heal. Go, pluck for her an apple from the tree. For a second, Diggory could hardly understand. It was as if the whole world had turned inside out and upside down. And then, like someone in a dream, he was walking across to the tree. The king and the queen were cheering him, and all the creatures were cheering too. He plucked the apple and put it in his pocket. Then he came back to Aslan. Please, he said, may we go home now? He had forgotten to say thank you, but he did mean it, and Aslan understood. Chapter 15 You need no ring when I am with you, said the voice of Aslan. The children blinked and looked about them. They were once more in the wood between the worlds. Uncle Andrew lay on the grass, still asleep, and Aslan stood beside them. Come, said Aslan, it is time you went back. 
But there are two things to see to first, a warning and a command. Look here, children. They looked and saw a little hollow in the grass with a grassy bottom, warm and dry. When you were last here, said Aslan, that hollow was a pool, and when you jumped into it, you came to the world where a dying sun shone over the ruins of Charn. There is no pool now. That world has ended as it had never as if it had never been. Let the race of Adam and Eve take warning. Yes, Aslan, both children said. But Polly added, But we were not quite as bad as that world, are we, Aslan? No, not yet, daughter of Eve, he said, not yet. But you are growing more like it. It is not certain that some wicked one of your race will not find out a secret as evil as the deplorable world and use it to destroy all living things. And soon, very soon, before you are an old man and an old woman, great nations in your world will be ruled by tyrants who care no more for joy and justice and mercy than the Empress Jadis. Let your world beware. That is the warning. Now for the command. As soon as you can, take this take from uncle that this uncle of yours his magic rings and bury them so that no one can use them again. Both the children were looking up into the lion's face as he spoke these words, and all at once they never knew exactly how it happened. The face seemed to be a sea of tossing gold in which they were floating. And such a sweetness and power rolled about them and over them and entered them that they felt they had never really been happy or wise or good or even alive and awake before. And the memory of that moment stayed with them always, so that as long as they both lived, if ever they were sad or afraid or angry, they thought of that golden goodness and the feeling that it was all that was still there, quite close, just round some corner or behind some door, would come back and make them sure, deep down inside, that all was well. Next minute, all three of them, Uncle Andrew was now awake, came tumbling into the noise, heat, and hot smells of London. They were on the pavement outside of the Kettley's front door, and except that the witch, the horse, and the cabbie were gone, everything was exactly as they had left it. There was the lamp post with one of its arms missing, there was the wreck of the handsome cab, and there was the crowd. Everyone was still talking, and people were kneeling besides the damaged policeman, saying things like, Oh, he's coming around, or How do you feel now, old chap? Or the ambulance will be here in a jiffy. Great Scott, thought Diggory. I believe the whole adventure's taken no time at all. Most people are wildly looking, were wildly looking around for Jadis and the horse at that moment. No one took any notice of the children, for no one had really seen them or noticed them coming back. As for Uncle Andrew, what between the state of his clothes and the honey on his face, he could not have been recognized by anyone. Fortunately, the front door of the house was opened and the housemaid was standing in the doorway, staring out at the fun. What a day that girl was having. So the children had no difficulty bustling Uncle Andrew inside before anyone had any questions to ask. He raced up the stairs before them and at first, they were afraid he was heading for his attic and meant to hide his remaining rings. But they needn't have bothered. What he was thinking about was the bottle and his wardrobe. And he disappeared at once into his bedroom and locked the door. 
When he came out again, which was not for a very long time, he was in his dressing gown and made straight for the bathroom. Can you get the other rings, Pole? asked Diggory. I want to go see my mother. Right, I'll see you later, said Polly, and she clattered up the attic stairs. Then Diggory took a moment to get his breath, and then he went softly into his mother's room. There she lay, as she had been, as he had seen her lay so many other times, propped up with pillows, with a thin, pale face that made you want to cry when you looked at it. Diggory took the apple of life out of his pocket, and just as the witch Jadis had looked different when he saw her in our world, instead of in her own, so did the fruit of the mountain garden look different too. There were, of course, all sorts of colored things in the bedroom. The colored counterpane on the bed, the wallpaper, the sunlight from the window, Mother's pretty pale blue dressing jacket. But the moment Digger took the apple out of his pocket, all those things seemed to have scarcely any color at all. Every one of them, even the sunlight, looked faded and dingy. The brightness of the apple threw strange lights up on the ceiling. Nothing else was worth looking at. You couldn't look at anything else. And the smell of the apple of youth was as if there was a window in the room that opened to heaven. Oh, darling, how lovely, said his mother. You will eat it, won't you, please, Degree said. I don't know what the doctor would say, she answered, but really, I almost feel that as if I could. He peeled it and cut it up, giving it to her piece by piece. No sooner had she finished it than she smiled, and her head sank back into the pillow, and she was asleep. It was a real, natural, gentle sleep, without any of those nasty drugs, which was, as Diggory knew, the thing that the whole world, and the whole world that she had wanted most. And he was sure now that her face looked a little different. He bent down and kissed her softly, and stole out of the room with a beating heart, taking the core of the apple with him. For the rest of that day, whenever he looked at the things about him, and saw how ordinary and unmagical they were, he hardly dared to hope, for when he remembered the face of Aslan, he, his hope came back. That evening, he buried the core of the apple in the back garden. The next morning, when the doctor made his usual visit, Diggory leaned over the banisters to listen. He heard the doctor come out with Aunt Letty and heard him say, Miss Ketterly, this is the most extraordinary case I have known in my whole medical career. It is, it is like a miracle. I wouldn't tell that little boy anything at present. We don't want to raise any false hopes. But in my opinion, then his voice became too low for Diggory to hear. That afternoon, Diggory went to the garden and whistled their agreed secret signal for Polly. She had been able to come to get back the day before. What luck, said Polly, looking over the wall. I mean, what about your mother? I think... I think all is going to be all, all right, he said, but if you don't mind, I'd rather not talk about it just yet. What happened to all the rings? Oh, I've got them all, said Polly. Look, it's all right. I'm wearing gloves, see? Let's bury them. Oh, yes, let's. I've marked the place where I buried the core from, from the apple yesterday. Polly then climbed over the wall, and they went together to the place. But as it turned out, Diggory need not have marked its place. Something was already coming up. But it was not growing so that you could see it grow as the new trees had done in Narnia. It was already well above ground. 
They got out a trowel and buried all the magic rings, including their own ones, in a circle around it. About a week after this, it was quite certain that Dickory's mother was indeed going to get better. About a fortnight later, she was able to sit out in the garden. A month after that, the whole house had become a different place. Aunt Letty did everything that mother liked. Windows were opened, frowsy curtains were drawn back to brighten up the rooms. There were new flowers everywhere, nicer things to eat. The old piano was tuned, and mother took up her her singing again. And they had such games with Diggory and Polly that Aunt Letty would say, I declare, Maple, you're the biggest baby of the three. When things go wrong, you'll find they usually go on getting worse for some time. But when things once start going right, they often go on getting better and better. After about six weeks of this lovely life, there came a long letter from Father in India, which had wonderful news in it. Old great-uncle Kirk had died, and this meant, apparently, that Father was now very rich. He was going to retire and come home from India forever and ever. And the great big house in the country, which Diggory had heard of all his life, but had never been able to see, would now be their home. The big house with the suits of armor, the stables, the kennels, the river, the parks, the hothouses, the vineries, the woods, and all the mountains beyond it. So that Diggory felt just as sure as you that they were all going to live happily ever after. But perhaps you would like to know just one or two things more. Polly and Diggory were always great friends, and she came nearly every holiday to stay with them at their beautiful house in the country. And that was where she learned to ride and swim and milk and bake and climb. In Narnia, the beasts lived in great peace and joy, and neither the witch nor any other enemy came to trouble that pleasant land for many hundred years. King Frank and Queen Helen and their children lived happily in Narnia, and their second king became king of Archenland. The boys married nymphs, and the girls married wood gods and river gods. The lamp post, which the witch had planted without knowing it, shone day and night in the Narnian forest, so that the, it's, so that the place where it grew came to be called Lantern Waste. And when, many years later, another child from our world got into Narnia on a snowy night, she found the light still burning. And that adventure was, in a way, connected to the ones... I have been tell- just telling you. It was like this. The tree which sprang from the apple that Diggory planted in the back garden lived and grew into a fine tree. Growing in the soil of our world, far out of the sound of Aslan's voice and far from the young heir of Narnia, it did not bear apples that would revive a dying woman as Diggory's mother had been revived, though it did bear apples more beautiful than any others in England. And they were extremely good for you, though not fully magical. But inside itself, in the very sap of it, the tree, so to speak, never forgot that other tree in Narnia to which it belonged. Sometimes it would move mysteriously when there was no wind blowing. I think that when this happened, there were high winds in Narnia, and the English tree quivered, because at that moment, the Narnia tree was rocking and swaying in a strong southwestern gale. However that that might be, it was proved later that there was still magic in its wood, for when Diggory was quite middle-aged, and he was a famous, learned man, man, a professor, and a great traveler by that time, and the Kidderley's old house belonged to him, 
there was a great storm all over the south of England, which blew the tree down. Now, he couldn't bear to have it simply chopped up for firewood, so he had part of the timber made into a wardrobe, which he put into his big house in the country. And though he himself did not discover the magic properties of that wardrobe, someone else did. That was the beginning of all the comings and goings between Narnia and our world, which you will read of in other books. When Diggory and his people went in, went to live in the big country house, they took Uncle Andrew to live with them, for Diggory's father said, We must try to keep the old fellow out of mischief, and it isn't fair to poor Letty, to poor, that poor Letty should have to always keep him in, on her hands. Uncle Andrew never tried any magic as long as he lived. He had learned his lesson, and in his old age, he became a nicer and less selfish old man than he had ever been before. But he always liked to get visitors alone in the billiard room and tell them stories about a mysterious lady of foreign royalty with whom he had driven about London. A devilish temper she had, he would say. But she was a damn fine woman, sir. A damn fine woman.